good. All right, now we're off. We can restart. You can forget, like, that's the beauty of live stream, right? It's on the internet forever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Stu, if people are visiting our church because of my face. I sure hope that's not why they're coming. I, my grandfather told me a few months ago that I look exponentially better when I put the mask on, so I'm not really sure what that's all about, but it is, it is really wonderful to see each and every one of you that have joined us here this morning. We know there's something significant about what it means to be a gathered community. Before we get to the text this morning, I just want to make a brief comment. We've talked during this sermon series, this journey of grace, what it means to not only be followers of Christ on our own, but followers of Christ together. And there's something significant that happens when we gather as a group of people. One of the interesting things that we do when we read scripture is that when we read it alone, we can actually read it differently than when we read it together. I'm reminded of verses like Matthew 18, 20, when Jesus tells his disciples, where two or three are gathered in my name, there also am I with them. And what I want to point out for us this morning before we get to the text is there's this interesting presumption that we can make with texts such as these, or when we gather, that because we gather, then therefore Jesus is present. That perhaps our gathering is the catalyst of Jesus' work in the world. That maybe because we gather, we might say things like, okay, now, Jesus, you can show up in the world. But God's been teaching me something over these last several months as we've thought more and more about what it means to be a church, a community fixed in a place and a time. Is that I would suggest to us today that in order for us to truly see Jesus, we have to gather. And I don't mean that gather in this sense, like on a Sunday morning, but to say that we can't see Jesus outside of ourselves. When it's simply us on our own, I don't think that I can understand who Jesus is or who Jesus is calling me to be. And so when Christ says to his disciples, where two or three are gathered, perhaps he says to us this morning that where two or more or three or however many are gathered, then our eyes become open to the way that Christ has perhaps always been present. And so in that spirit this morning, I want to invite us to read the text, reading it not only for ourselves, but hearing it in the presence of other believers, hearing it in the context of community. One of the things God's been doing in my heart as I've been reading and reflecting over these past few months as I sit in my office with a cup of coffee while the light's still soft in the mornings. It's been bringing people to mind. As I read through the text, I think about your faces. Think about your stories. Think about your names. As they come to mind, and I think, not only what does this text mean for me, what does it mean for Doug this morning? What does it mean for Lori? What does it mean for Jen? That I might discover the answer to the question, what does it mean for us as a people? So in that spirit, I invite you to stand with us this morning as we read from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 6. Paul says to the church in Corinth this, But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. 
Yet three times I prayed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we've been walking through this series these last few weeks, we've been talking about what it means to walk in a journey of grace. One of the things I got to do last week that was such a privilege is we talked about what it means not only to experience our own stories, but also share those stories with one another. I had time in the lobby where I was able to hear some of those stories of grace from you. One that stuck out to me, and I'll, I didn't ask her, but I'm going to pick on her anyway this morning. Jennifer Loars came up to me and told me this story that I have not forgotten since you told me last Sunday. And we began talking about baptism, and she told me her own baptism story when she was invited forward as a little girl and never turned back. What's so moving about stories like that is that they begin to fill out the picture of who God is in the world for me. And then I begin to discover this journey that I was invited to join Christ on when I was 17 years old and I confessed a full dedication to God and who God was in my life. That that picture has begun to fill out more and more as I not only have heard stories from people, but I have learned to listen. And I think, church, for us this morning, we need two things so desperately in this season. Two things that I've begun to hear from God. The first one is this. We need a boldness to share with one another that which God is doing in our lives. When we experience the divine in a way that is transformative to us, the worst thing we can do is keep that to ourselves. Because when sharing it with others, we experience the second thing that we need. We need ears to hear. We need ears to hear from one another how God is moving, not only in your life, but how God is moving in our lives. We often get the question as a church, where should our community go? What should our church look like five years from now? And often questions like that fall upon pastoral leadership. I know we all look to Stu and say, Stu, what are we going to do five years from now? And while perhaps there's that expectation sometimes given to church leaders, one of the unique things that we try to do here at Skyview, through things like our listening sessions a few weeks ago, where we got to hear from one another the ways that God has been speaking to us, is that we want to recognize that we can't answer these questions on our own. And to discern what God wants to do in and through Skyview Community Church in this place, we must discern together by first sharing our stories, but second, by listening for the ways that those stories are overlapping. Listening for the ways that God is perhaps saying similar things to me and to you. And there is where we find where God is calling us as communities. So as we kind of close this series, we've had this unique opportunity over these last six weeks to talk about this journey of grace. We've talked about a lot of unique aspects to what this journey is all about. And I get the privilege of kind of closing this series for us today. We've got something special planned for next week. 
but closing it in this fashion for us this week. I think we're left asking the question, why is grace a journey? Oftentimes in church traditions, we focus on moments, uh, moments where God does big, exciting things, transformative change, where grace becomes real in our lives. And while surely there are these moments, moments that we can point back to, look to, and recognize, we've come to realize that grace is also a journey. It's an invitation for us to get closer to Jesus each and every day, to walk with him, to grow to be transformed, and to be commissioned to serve him in this world. We've talked about many attributes of grace. Grace that goes before us. Grace that changes us wholly inside. Grace that empowers us. Grace that sustains us in challenging times in the world. We've recognized that this life to which God calls us is not a sprint, but a marathon. A journey that looks often like little steps forward. We've celebrated the ways that God has worked in our lives in the past, but also the ways God's working in our community, and we should celebrate that. For grace gives us much to celebrate in our lives and in the world, for it's the gift that changes everything. For grace seeks to make not just us, but all things in this world new. And while this sounds exciting, newness can be a difficult word for us, and one we must sit with for a minute. Because if we aren't careful, we can translate grace into this form of invincibility, this form that keeps us from suffering in this world, this maybe attribute of God that makes us immune to the world around us. Perhaps gives us this perspective of prayer that says, if I pray hard enough, maybe God will take these things away from me. But grace is so much more than that. Because the grace that wants to make all things new in the world is not simply a grace for ourselves. It's not a newness just simply in my own life and my own struggles and my own challenges, but a newness of all things that have been created. A newness of the entire world, of all the things that we both see and do not see. For the newness where God is headed seeks to affect all that is around us. All that was created from the very beginning and was called very good. This sort of newness is where God calls us to along this journey. A newness that not only anticipates change in our own lives, but longs for change in the world around us. As we look on this text and what Paul's trying to say to this church in Corinth, I think there's three things. It's a good Nazarene sermon this morning with three points, don't worry. So you can count, make sure I stick to it. I think there's this initial experience of grace. I think if you read a few verses earlier, you'll read about this experience that Paul shares with this community. This kind of strange sounding thing that happens to him. As you read through these verses, you begin to see the ways that God worked in Paul's life in ways that we perhaps can't even understand. He talks about being pulled up into this sort of third heaven of sorts. He talks about all these strange and miraculous visions that occurred to him. And what's interesting about this, as we read through it, perhaps the meaning can be lost on us as modern readers because this language is unfamiliar. We don't go around talking like this each and every day with our experiences with God. But while we may not be versed in kind of the nuances of Near Eastern tradition, which is okay, you can get too into that and get a little bored if you're not careful. (laughs) There's an interesting thing here when we reflect on the good Jew that Paul was, a Jewish scholar of sorts. 
One that would have been very familiar with the structure of not only worship, but also the structure of the temple. It began at the tabernacle, this kind of three-tiered place in which Israel met God. So perhaps for us, the third heaven, this kind of image that Paul gives us, can reflect an understanding from Paul. That the encounter that he had with God, that he says he had 14 years before, was so influential was so powerful, was so transformative that he understood it to be at the very center of who God was. That as we understand through the temple, there's this three-tier, this, this holy of holies, the center point of what was the worship for Israel, was the place in which God and earth met. And so I think it's interesting for us just to reflect for a moment before we dive into what Paul has to say about this vision, that the way in which he understood it was so impactful in his life. So impactful to a point where he almost didn't want to share it for fear that it would elate him. For fear that it would build him up. For fear that perhaps those that heard it would not hear the one who did the work, but would see the one in whom the work was done. I think that grace can take root in our lives in a variety of ways. And throughout this series, we've looked at a multitude of ways that God introduces us to these sort of gracious movements in the world. And while the stories we hear might be different, I think there's a constant that remains in this experience. For when God meets with us, we don't leave the same. When God encounters the world, the world is not left as it once was, but is changed, transformed, perhaps even made new. When God meets with us, God's movement in and through our lives does not leave us as we were, but in fact gives us eyes to see the people that we have always been created to be. And I think this sort of language excites us because the fact that God can change us wholly from the inside, the fact that God can totally transform everything that we do in our lives should excite us. But this understanding comes with an important amendment one to which Paul holds dearly. Because no matter how much work God does in us, we are not the one who does the work. We are not the one who begins the work, for God and God alone is the one who does this in our lives and in the world around us. And friends, I fear that as we hear more and more stories of church leaders falling from these positions of influence, While there's so much wrapped up in those stories, there seems to be a constant that remains in these sort of experiences. The constant that maybe this truth at one point was neglected or forgotten. That in all the growth, in all the influence, in all the transformation, maybe a failure to reaffirm the one who began that work. And so no matter how influential Skyview becomes as we walk along this journey, not only for ourselves, but for our Northern Hills community, no matter how big our ministries grow, no matter how many baptisms we celebrate each year, my hope is that we never forget the one who begins that work is not us. And I say that because Paul tells the church very clearly that the one who began a good work will bring it to completion one day. I think there's another element to what Paul says, and it's this humility. Not only does he have an experience, but the way he responds to that is significant. So in this humility of grace, 
In reading this text, it's always important for us to remember that these authors were theologians of their time. Right? They didn't read or write in a vacuum. In other words, they weren't blind to the world around them. So it's important that we pay attention to the way that Scripture stands, not only in contrast to the things we experience, but the things that were experienced in the time in which it was written. For Paul stands in Corinth in the writing of this letter. This hub, this international place of wealth, art, and culture that held significant power in the world. There were leaders, ruling emperors of the day, people like Julius Caesar, Augustus, and Nero. These different Roman authorities that greatly shaped the way the emerging Christian culture was coming to understand their place in the world. And what's interesting is experiences like the one that Paul has just shared were actually not that uncommon of stories. For most ruling authorities throughout history claimed similar, if not even greater, encounters with the divine. Roman emperors were considered sovereign, absolute monarchs in the world, called to their position through providence. For the emperor was viewed as a superhuman, a godlike figure, modeled after national deities of the day. To go even further, emperor worship was encouraged, almost required by local authorities in provinces. These leaders would even come to be known in some places as sons of God. This sort of idea helps to contrast the way Paul is portrayed here. For even in his incredible access to the divine, even in his incredible experience with who God is and what God has done in his life, Paul humbles himself, even to go further to say that he is glad in his weakness. He even goes a step further to claim that it is not just him, but the power of the God that he serves is glad in weakness. And so from the very start, we recognize that this sort of God is something different than what people understood in the world around. When Paul says here that God is not only one of power, but one of weakness, that sort of message would have been scandalized in the Roman Empire. People would have revolted with such an idea, even laughed and scoffed, and often they did. Interestingly enough, even the ruling emperor of the time, Emperor Claudius, uh, being one of the only emperors that opposed such a divine tribute, was one of the few that actually stood up in the midst of this system and said, no, 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 that's not for me, but that's for God. Interestingly enough, this request was denied by his senate. And when he died, he was deified. It's fascinating to me that even the systems that upheld such an empire, the systems that have upheld such an understanding of power and dominance in the world, wasn't understood or accepted by those who lived in the system. So what am I saying here? I think we must confess something when it comes to grace. That the grace of God in our lives, while powerful and transformative, does not seek to position us above others. If we were honest with ourselves, if we were honest with history, we would recognize that communities of faith throughout history have used encounters with the divine to seek power and privilege over others. The gospel has at times in history been used and abused and contorted to be a tool to climb above 
rather than sink below. So just as emperors, kings, and other world leaders, both throughout history and even in our current context, we have at times fallen prey to this temptation, feeling the allure of power in the world. Her power is attractive. Power is inviting. Power gives us this illusion that we are over others. Perhaps in our following of Christ, we have at times dreamed of a world where Christ's kingship would give us authority. Disciples once came to Christ and asked if they could sit at the right hand of Christ. Even in this moment where Christ was living a life of service for others, they still didn't understand that the life to which they were being called was not one that upheld themselves, but actually brought them low. But the Christ who rode into Jerusalem, not on a horse, not with an army, but on a donkey, is the same Christ who talks to Paul and the same Christ who speaks to us today, who says these words to us, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect, not in strength, but in weakness. And this is why good storytelling matters. This is why sharing our stories of grace matters so deeply because this text suggests that Paul had a real hesitancy to even share this story. Perhaps he was afraid that this story would build him up, that people would begin to worship him, but he is motivated to share this story because he's afraid that if he doesn't share it, somebody else will and perhaps abuse it. That he needs to share a story of what God has done in his life, but also posture himself in a posture of humility so that the stories would actually transform in the way that God wants them to. So as we share our stories, we do so not only so that others might know, but so that people in the world might begin to get a picture of who this God is. That this God is not a God of power, but a God of grace. A God who lowers himself, who took on flesh, who was born in a stable who walked among us and died on a cross. A God that upends all expectations, that shifts all motivations that perhaps we are led to believe in our world, that actually success and happiness are not found through climbing up of a ladder, but through being made low. This message at times becomes more and more unappealing. The more we accumulate, the more we gather, and at times I have struggled myself to even understand why people would walk such a journey. But I repeat the words of Christ to us this morning. My grace is sufficient for you. I think a failure to understand grace comes from a failure to believe. And I say this to myself just as much as to our community. A failure to believe that God's grace is actually enough. Church, this morning I need to confess that God's grace is enough for us. And I think this leads us into the final dimension of what Paul tries to say is that there's this goal to grace. It's no secret to us that we live in what we call a post-Christian age. One in which the absence of belief in God feels much more common than the presence of one. And this reality has caused the church to question its mission, 
to ask new questions like, how can we share God with a world that seems to have no interest in that God? How can we maybe reimagine our community so that people would actually want to be a part? These sorts of questions and many more rattle through our minds. And while these questions can be helpful, if we're not careful, they can reflect a temptation to declare the world as lost or no longer worthy of God's love. We can begin to look down on the world with these perspectives, look down in a way that actually builds us up and falls right back into the very temptation that Paul warns us to. For a generation, the church struggled to hope in the world, struggled to believe that God actually could make all things new and focused our attention somewhere else, asking that God would take us away from it all. But you know what gives me hope these days? is that I see a renewed desire and confession in the church that this world matters to God. That this place matters to God and that the newness that he wants to do in my life, he also wants to do in the world around me. This future that God imagines for the world is a renewal of all that is, a future in which the kingdom would be realized, a future in which heaven and earth would no longer be separate, but intimately intertwined. A mentor of mine referred to moments like this as thin spaces, places where heaven and earth almost feel one. This is the future that God longs for. This is the vision that God has for our world. But in our pursuits of this mission, we can, just like Christ throughout history, we can assume this kingdom reality would come when the church can finally stake its claim of power in society. But friends, I cannot say to us enough this morning that to follow Christ is not to follow to the throne, but is to follow to the cross. Before we go any further, don't hear me that influence isn't important. For I'm grateful for the moments in my life where Christ's presence is influential where I have opportunities to influence those around me who have yet to experience Christ's love and grace in their world. But influence can be misunderstood as coercive, ultimately leading us right back to where the emperors were, who sought to use God as a tool for their own gain. I think one final piece we need to wrestle with before we close the text this morning is this pesky thorn that Paul keeps talking about. This thorn that he actually prays three different occasions God would remove from him. And people have debated for generations about the nature of this thorn. And some would say that it's generally a reminder from God for Paul to stay humble. And while I think that's perhaps true, this morning I would suggest something more to us. I think that to follow Christ means at times we bear thorns. What I'm not saying is bearing thorns in the sense that we are the victims. Because I think when we personify ourselves as the victims, we can fall right back into these traps of looking at the world with judgmental eyes. Not looking at them with the eyes that God has for them. But I think that the thorns that we bear, while painful, are sometimes the way that Christ invites us to follow him. All to say that following Christ can be a challenging work to a place where I, even in my life, have wondered, 
This is hard. Moments of transformation and grace in my life, while they have been impactful for me, I would confess to you today that there have been moments of wondering, is this sort of life worth it? I don't say that to you today to make you wonder, but to affirm the doubt and questioning even in our faith is not something to be worried about because God's there just the same. God can be with us in our questions and our doubts because God is a God of grace, one that sits with us in those moments and in fact says in verse 9, as we've said already, that that grace is sufficient for us. I think this thorn, what it does for Paul is it reorients his perception of what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ. Perhaps others who followed Christ didn't bear the same burdens, but I would suggest to us this morning that Paul, in following Jesus, in the way he recognizes this thorn to be an ailment in his life, shows a courageousness, or a courage, a courage to see the journey for what it is, a life spent in the service of others. This thorn reality isn't just true for him, but it's also true about the Corinthians and perhaps even true of us today. That this sort of burden, this sort of pain, this sort of ailment is actually what it means to follow Christ faithfully. For Paul's revelation here affirms that this sort of work is a work that bleeds for the sake of others. This is a work that is heavy, it is tiring, and it will cause us to suffer for the sake of the world. But this, my friends, is the good news. This is the gospel. But even in that weakness, there's strength to be found here. Not so much in our enhanced ability to be above others, but instead strength that we might discover who we were always created to be. Strength that we might discover the people that God had always intended us to be. And Paul's words here show a courageous awareness. For Paul, once a religious zealot, one who sought to stifle what Christ was doing in this community, had his eyes wide open to the true nature of what this journey was. How would this sort of journey change the way that we saw the world? I think when we sense an abuse of God's name in our society, when or sense an absence of God's name in our society, we can be led to wonder, maybe when will we get a place back in it all? Maybe when will we get a position of power once again? Because that would be what God wants. But I think Paul suggests something else to us. That when we see an absence of God in society, he invites us to be the people that we were always created to be. A people that are courageous enough to follow along in a journey that seems often unappealing. A journey that is not defined by power, but a journey that is defined by grace. That is defined by opening our arms so that others may see not only who they were created to be, but who God sees them as. I think there's many journeys we can walk. I think for those who follow Christ, there is an allure, as we've talked about, of power. 
one that seeks to uphold ourselves, to push others down who don't agree. But this journey of power, while it will lead us somewhere, I can assure you it's not where we'll find Jesus. Because when that road ends, we'll be left wondering where Christ is, for he's on a much different journey. A journey that actually invites us to live counter to every expectation that others would perhaps have of us. For this journey of grace is different. For this journey of grace, if we follow God long enough, minding the twists and the turns of the world, we arrive at the center point of history. The moment where God's identity was put on full display. A moment in history when God revealed God's self for all that he was and all that he always has been. A God who hung there on the cross with his arms wide open, suffering for the sake of others that they might see on full display who we have always been created to be. I think we serve a God who gives us a picture of the kind of person that he's calling us to. Serving this God who hangs there on a tree reminds me how unappealing this journey can sound at times. How counter this journey can sound at times for those that listen. But I would suggest to us today that for God to be made known in the world, for God to be made real in not only our lives but the lives of those around us, we need to see God for who he truly is. We need to see God for the God that sees all of our suffering, all of our pain, all of our hurt, all of our inadequacy, and wraps it all up in his arms and says, let me make all of it new. Sometimes this sort of life will hurt. Sometimes this sort of life will require us to let go of our own expectations, our own understandings of what the world should be or how people should act around us. But requires us to open our arms and invite God to do what only God can do. As the band comes forward and we close in a last song, I would invite us to reflect as I have reflected on this text all week, struggling and wrestling through what God wants me to communicate to our community this morning. Because I know messages like this don't often inspire us in the way that we perhaps have grown accustomed. They don't inspire us with great power and elation, but they remind us of the journey we've been invited to walk along. Has always been and will always be a journey of pouring ourselves out for the sake of others. And so church, this morning, as we sing this final song, I was reminded last week of the value of these places we call altars. Maybe you're not comfortable coming forward, and that's totally okay, but even in our seats this morning, I would invite us to offer a word of prayer to God. Perhaps you find yourself unfamiliar with this journey entirely. Maybe you've never been invited to walk along a journey of grace with God. God says, come follow me. Or perhaps you've been walking for a long time. Perhaps you've been following for many, many years, longer than you can remember. But God looks at you and says, continue to follow me. So for all of us this morning, 
would we open our eyes and our ears and ask that God would reveal to us who God truly is, one who hangs there, arms wide open on the cross for the sake of the world and invites us to do the very same. I invite you to pray or if you want to stand and sing with us this morning as we close.